Okay, everyone. Thank you for joining. Partial my last Torah portion in the book of Genesis, the book of Pereshis. And um, we're going to grab onto this holy Torah portion and hold on tight because we all love Pereshis. Pereshis is so awesome and it's a little painful when we know we're letting go over it, even though we're coming up a whole new great Torah book, the book of Exodus, but still Pereshis is the parsha of our forefathers and all the good stories. So here's our last licks on the book of Bereshis, on Parshas Vayechi. So the Torah relates to us in this week's, anybody that wants to dedicate this class, here's a good chance to still dedicate in the book of Bereshis. You can do it, birthdays, anniversaries, um, other special occasions, in memory of whoever, in the merit of, and uh, even though it's not mentioned post-class, it will be retroactively for that merit. Thank you. Okay, here we are. We are ready to start. So in this week's Parsha's Vayechi, sorry I'm starting late. We're supposed to start this class more like eight, but I had a little technical issues. Okay. So now we are here. So this week's Torah portion is talking about Yaakov, our forefather, the last of our patriarchs, and he's passing from the world. And right before he passes from the world, he invites all his sons to his bedside and he blesses them. And we go through the various different blessings that he blesses his children. He rebukes the first three and blesses the last. 12 minus, or it's, uh, yeah, 12 minus three is what? Nine. Nine get blessed and three get smacked. Um, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, but you have to say there's some blessing over there. And then we go to the very last tribe that he speaks to, the youngest one of his sons, and that is Binyamin. Now, what you notice in all of these blessings is that he compares many of them to various different creatures or different animals. Yehuda is blessed to be compared to the qualities of a lion. Yisachar is blessed with the quality of a donkey, a mule that can carry heavy weights um, and endure a long time with heavy carrying. A load of Torah, as we know, done is compared to a snake. Um, the ability to creep up on his enemy and take him down, and very and so on. We have the various different um, animals that are mentioned. I might have mentioned all of them besides the last one, which I'm saving now, and that is Binyamin. Binyamin, what do we say about Binyamin? What does Jacob say to Binyamin? It's the last verse of Jacob's blessings. And then after he says this verse, he blesses all of his sons unified in one unified blessing, and then he passes away. So this is in verse Perek Mem Tes, Pasuk Zion, that's chapter 49, verse number 27. He says, Binyamin, Binyamin, the Av Yitrof. Binyamin is compared to the wolf. Now that's the reason I'm giving this class, because I identify very much with Binyamin, even though I'm not from the tribe of Binyamin. I'm a Kohen, so I'm a tribe from Levi. But being that my mostly most people know me as Rabbi Wolf or whatever, I feel a deep connection to the wolf. And I do I do see certain certain characteristics of this of this blessing pertaining to me, whether it involves 
what I've done or do or what I should be doing. There is the quality of, Binyamin is blessed with the qualities of a wolf. Now, what Yaakov is really doing is when you're giving a blessing, is what you're really doing is you're, undi- you're digging out the potential of that tribe. A blessing is basically opening the faucet. Opening the faucet already. But a lot of times people have certain untapped qualities and they're, and they're not capable of unearthing it. It's like having treasures buried in your own property, but you just don't have the tools to dig them out. A blessing helps you dig them out or helps you bring the treasures to the surface. So that's why the verse says, he blessed each one according to his blessing, which is a strange thing to say. He blessed each one according to the blessing. Of course, if he blessed them, then everyone was blessed according to the blessing that he blessed them. And the answer is no, he couldn't give Binyamin the donkey blessing. And he couldn't give Yisachar the wolf blessing because the quality of soul of Benjamin, of Binyamin, is the one of a wolf. The quality of the soul of Yehuda is one of a lion, and so on and so forth. So um, Binyamin is blessed with the, the blessing of a wolf. And what does he say about him? Let's read. It says, Binyamin Ze'ev Yitrov. Binyamin will be a wolf that grabs. Okay, Yitrov means that he devours. Okay, it attacks its prey and it devours its prey. Baboyker in the morning. Now, a wolf is a pretty vicious animal. Okay, it's one of those animals that are on the top three, four uh, animals on the list in which you don't want to encounter alone in the wild. Especially if it's not one wolf, but a pack of wolves. Okay, they could be very dangerous. You got the bear, the lion, tiger, which is large cats, and the bears, and a wolf. Those are the, the, the very vicious animals. So um, Binyamin's characteristic of it, obviously we're talking about a holy characteristic that is meant to be used for holiness. And his character is one of devouring. Now, the verse says, when do we find that Binyamin, with this power of the devouring energy of the wolf, Baboyker in the morning, Yoichel Ad, he eats the plunder, and to the evening, he splits shalal, which is the spoils. Okay, so there's something that he's going to do in the morning and in the now. Some of our say wolves are very active early morning and late evening. So that's their time. Uh, many animals are that. Early morning is dangerous, by the way. If you go out for jogging or you go hiking or you go and sometimes over here in LA, there's mountain mountain lion areas. Got to be most careful by dawn. Got to be most careful early morning because that's when an, animals are more more on the prowl. In the middle of the intense sunlight, they don't go out. At night they do, but also at night it's you know. But in early morning, late evening, wolves are that way as well. They have more activity early morning time when they plunder. They they, they eat their prey, they grab their prey, they devour their prey. So Binyamin is compared to a wolf, Benjamin. Now, where is it that Binyamin displays this characteristic? His father blessed him, which means, as I mentioned earlier, he essentially has this characteristic in him, 
and Yaakov is helping him activate it. Now, if Yaakov gave him, Jacob gave him that blessing, so I'm sure we, we, can, we can assure that it came to fruition. It came into, it manifested, it actualized. When was this? So for this, we have Rashi. Rashi is going to give us, an, give us an explanation. So Rashi says on the verse, Binyamim Ze'ev Yitroiv, Ze'ev Asha Yitroiv, he's a lion that does, that grabs or that devours. Nibal Okay. They, th- this is a prophecy that the descendants of Binyamin are going to be grabbers. Okay. Where do we find that they grab? Grabbing means to st- take something against the wishes of whoever it belongs to. Generally, a very not good trait. But let's continue. Um, and what does Rashi say? Where do we find that? We find that also by not the, not the prettiest story. It says, Every man should grab a wife. Um, and when is this referring to? This is talking about by the story of the concubine in Giva. What in the world is this? So in the book of Judges, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, of a, of a uh, history. It's a very painful story. It's one of the darkest stories in, reported in Tanakh. A dark story that had devastating consequences. It, it, on the one hand, it shows on even a chosen people and even a godly people can become so denigrated and fall so low to act in the most immoral way possible. But on the other hand, it shows on the high level of morality and holiness and and um, sense of, of of justice that the Jewish people had in those days. So it shows on both. Uh, a crime, basically, a crime, a, a heinous crime was committed by one, by the fact, by a, by a few people of the tribe of Benjamin. That, and what happened was the, these thugs that committed this crime the Benjamin courts or whatever did not hold them accountable. Maybe they were people that had a lot of pull or maybe they were whatever. The Benjamin tribe did not hold these people accountable for this heinous crime. And this caused basically the only time in history that there was a major civil war happening in, I don't know if the only time, but a major civil war, all of the tribes of Israel went out to war against Benjamin and the the children of Benjamin it was a with devastating consequences on both sides, but in the end, Binyamin was wiped out, almost to no survivors. Then there were just a few left. So let's repeat, tell you a little bit the story. What happened was like this, just briefly. Again, this is all the way in the end of the book of Judges, and so it says like this: There was a man. He got. He, he had a concubine. The concubine was a secondary wife, right, and which was permitted. And um, again, in Jewish practice today, no one does that, and it's not permitted. But in, at that time, it was uh, certain rabbinic enactments were not yet in place. This goes back early history. Anyways, the story is this: this his his concubine left him. He went back to retrieve her. Uh, he goes to his father-in-law's house. She welcomes him very lovingly. He's there for a couple of days. He wants to leave. His father-in-law tells him, no, 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 don't leave yet. I didn't really read the story carefully. I'm not a uh, great, um, the Hasidic schools that we studied in, they didn't really learn so much. We learned, studied more Talmud than studying scripture and all the various different navis. I didn't really learn this 
that well. I should, and I'd like to. But uh, in any case, so I'm, I'm giving you just a very brief overview and in a in a in a um, and not that informed one. So I'm not going to explain to you all the details of why the fellow wanted to keep him there. In the end, they kept on delaying him. Every day he wanted to leave, he told him, stay till the afternoon, you'll eat lunch before you leave. And so it just happened. And one day, finally, when he had enough, he saw that his father-in-law was pulling his leg. He left, and he left like midday. And when he left midday, he wasn't able to arrive to his house where he lived on time. He didn't want to travel at night. It was too dangerous to travel at night. He was ready to go to a Yebus city, the Jebusim, is where a group of Yevusim that lived in this area he felt uncomfortable. He thought that it would be dangerous to go into their town. And those days, there were many unfriendly people. Today's days, sometimes you meet that as well. He wasn't that happy. He was scared. He decided to continue on, and he came to a Jewish town. It was a town with the inhabitants of Giva. That was the name of the town. And it was in Benjamin territory. Okay? So now he's there, and he's sitting in town square, and he's hoping someone will invite him. He's looking for a... There was no inn or where he can stay. It looks like this guy was pretty wealthy. Um, he, 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 but there was no inn where he can stay, so he was looking for an invitation. And everybody ignored him. He was out in the street. He was asking people. Everybody just walked by him. No one would invite him. See, the whole story of, of this story is very um, reminiscent. It's, very, it's almost the, the to- complete repetition of the story of Saddam. This is the story. That's why it's so painful. Because these are Jewish people who should have been acting better. Anyways, no one invited him until finally an old man who was not even from that town passes by and he sees him and he takes pity on him and he discusses him, he invites him into his house. He comes into his home, he's there and, and he offers him to eat. And as he's there with his concubine, uh, the, 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 the house is surrounded by a bunch of thugs and they're banging on the door and they're asking the same exact story that happened by Sodom that... Um, they, that the, the old man should take his guest, put him out on the street. The man, because they wanted to abuse him, they literally they wanted to sodomize him. That was and it was a bunch, a whole bunch of thugs. And um, this guy, again, similar, same crazy story like Saddam. Which again, these things need a lot of commentary. So this guy goes out and he offers his daughter the same story. Like you had by Lot doing the same thing. He offers his daughter, and um, they don't want to hear. He want they want the guest. They want to teach this guy a lesson. Anyways, the man in the end takes his concubine. See, this shows on his flawed um, state of mind as well. He takes her and he puts her outside. They take this poor girl and raped her all night long. Okay. And after this happened, and finally in the morning, they let go of her. And when they let go of her, she collapsed. She managed to make her way back to the house. She collapsed by the door of the house and she died. He comes out in the morning and he finds his his concubine in that state. How much he was infuriated? Um, uh, I guess he's not clean in this as well because he just offered her up. Um, he leaves. He takes hold of her body. He cuts her body into pieces in order to drop, to make it very dramatic. He sends the pieces of her body across the entire, to, to, to all the, to 11 tribes. Every single tribe gets a piece of her body with a letter of what happened. 
Israel is in the entire nation of Israel is in utter shock that Jews were capable of doing something like this, of treating a girl like this and doing this to her. So again, on the one hand, the story is very painful, but on the other hand, the fact that it created such a such a shock, literally, to the entire people, to the point that they all gathered together and they came to meet this guy, they asked him what happened, he repeated the story. I guess they sent some, they did. What happened was they sent messengers to, to the tribe of Benjamin, to Binyamin, hand over the thugs because we're going to punish them. And Binyamin decided not to hang over the drift to, to protect them. And that's what called out a war. The Benjamites prepared for war against the rest of Israel. And the strange thing, what happened was the, 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 the Binyamin, uh, the, the, the were great warriors, and they were winning the battle two days in a row. The first day they killed 22,000 of the, of the tribe of Yehuda. Because God, they asked in the Urim Vitumim, they asked it, the, the, the breastplate of the high priest, who should go up to war? And the breastplate said Yehuda should go, should lead the attack. But they didn't ask if we're going to be victorious or not. They just asked, should we go? Because they were so enraged, they didn't make it, they were going to go fight. They were willing to risk their lives to punish, that this shouldn't happen again. Binyamin managed to slaughter from the tribe of Yehuda 22,000 men. The next day they went up a second day, they killed another 18,000. So they were talking about 40,000 Jewish men were lost in the first two days of battle. The Jews came back and were wondering what's happening. Why is God not with them? Now, they were punished for another reason. Why they lost in this first two days? Because of something else that they failed to do. In those days when things turned out bad, you always knew that it's today also, but then at least they had the prophet so they can find out why things were occurring. Um, in the end, God told them on the third day, today you'll be successful. They went in and they literally decimated the tribe of Binyamin. They literally killed them all. It was it was horrible. Um, everybody and and they, it, they 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 wiped them out. It's it's hard to believe it was a total wipeout. Men, women, and children. It was a it was a complete uh, annihilation. It was like one of the most horrific stories ever. There were six hundred men that managed to survive, to run away from the tribe of Binyamin. Six hundred men escaped. They were, they, were in the, they were in a cave or escaped for like a few months. And meanwhile, they must have shown tremendous remorse, obviously. And the tribes of Israel were then in major discussion. What are they going to do with the tribe of Binyam? With these last 600 men, they knew that Israel was supposed to have 12 tribes. And they knew, God forbid, if these people don't survive, or whatever, then one of the tribes of Israel would be deleted forever. And that would be a, a unmeasurable tragedy. That a full tribe would be amputated. They, they, they decide, I guess, and based on the remorse from these fellows, from these people, they decided, of course, to let them live. But not only that, to help them have children. And procreate and have uh, to generate a next generation that Binyamin should now rebuild itself after this horrible story. The problem was, at the time of the battle, they were so enraged at what Binyamin had done. It hurt them so much that they have to kill out their brothers. That's the, that, that their own Jew against Jew had to lift the sword and to and to and to deal such a punishment for what would happen. 
it hurt them so much, plus their own losses. The whole thing was so terrible that everybody had, they had made an oath that the tribe of Binyamin would be excommunicated. And no girl is allowed to marry a man from Binyamin. No girl from any of the other tribes are allowed to marry anybody from the Binyamin. So now you have these 600 men who can't marry. They have nobody to marry because there's nobody, uh, there's no available girls for them so that they can have children and then create the next tribe, the next uh, generation of generations of the tribe of Binyamin. So this dilemma was there. They came up with a solution, which is also nasty. The whole story is one of these, I understand why when we were children they, in, in the Hasidic schools, because if you, unless you learn these stories with a deeper understanding, some it's really hard to comprehend. So here's what happens. The next story is um, they, 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 they inspected and they said, who did not join this military campaign? And they found one city that didn't join along. And the, the, high, the court at that time decided that because this city had not joined along in this military campaign, they were in violation of breaking the national front. And that's why they should be punished, because they had warned that everybody must take up arms. Everybody must come. And one of the commentaries I was reading, they actually believed that it was a, that if, if, if people see that Israel was surrounded with a lot of enemies, lots of enemies, and if they see that they're not unified, that the, the tribes have warfare one against each other, that will make them look very weak in front of the enemies. So now, even though they know there is a war took place, but if they see everybody else at least together, but the fact that one, one city decided to ignore the, the, the military enlistment, the, what is it called, the draft, and one city didn't, that city needed to be punished. So what happened was they inhabitants of the city. Besides 400 girls that were not married. So they had 400 virgin girls that had never been married. And they said, okay, so the 400 girls that they have over here can now marry the Benyamites. But there was only 400 and there was 600 men. Again, this story, as I'm telling you, is one of the real shocker. So now they need to figure out how they wanted to provide wives for all the 600 of these men and again this was in, for the purpose of regenerating the seed of Binyamin amongst the Jewish people so what happens they told these men you never heard the story this is this is this is this is Navi go plegish begiva so here's the story so now they tell these 400 men now sorry 200 of them that are still without wives you say, listen here, everybody goes to Shiloh. This is before the temple stood in, in Jerusalem. They had a tabernacle, a mini temple in the city, in the town of Shiloh. They said, so good. Everybody comes up for the pilgrimage holidays. You guys come up as well. During that period of time, the girls of Shiloh go out to dance in the vineyards. That's a happy story. As we know, Tuba of um, Yom Kippur, it says the girls would go to Jerusalem, would go out to dance in the vineyards. So in that sense, they say, when the girls go out to dance, again, it, I know this will sound, again, continuously extremely shocking. Um, let me at least give a little commentary. My point over here is not to give you a comment. I'm not teaching this story. If I would be teaching this story, then we would sit and spend a couple of days learning the story. I'm, this story is just brought over here as an explanation on the 
wolf element of Binyamin. So the sages, so they, they told them, go out there. The girls are all outside. And these are the words the verse says, ishto. You should all grab a girl. So you have 200, 200 men will grab wives from Binyam. Now commentators explain, this is not a grab, a woman grab, where they're just grabbing and forcing these girls and taking them against their will. But rather it means without the consent of their parents. That's the idea. They should go out, meet the girls. They should go on a, on a, on a mass dating, meet the girls. Obviously, the girls have to consent to the marriage, you know, but the parents will not consent. Why don't we mean the parents will not consent? The problem that the oath that they all had made was that no one was going to give their daughter in marriage to the, that the parents. And as we understand, dating was very different in those days. It was the parents that would find a suitable match for their children. That's the way it mostly happened. In that case, that was the oath that they took, that the parents may not bring or, 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 or offer their daughters to anybody from the tribe of Binyamin. But in this case, they wouldn't be in the violation of the oath because the, ma- the matchmaking would be done by the couple themselves without the parents' consent. And that's the meaning that they're grabbing the girls. Grab them without the, without the, 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 the consent of the parents. And that's what happened. The ver- now the words the Torah uses over there is v'chataftem ish ishto. A man should grab a wife, grab a woman, and marry her. That's the end of that tragic story. And then Binyamin was rebuilt. And I'll tell you a cool story. One of these two hundred six hundred survivors, for the fact that I didn't know till today. One of these 600 survivors from the tribe of Binyamin was a man by the name of Saul, who later becomes the king over the Jewish people. Isn't that cool? He's only, he's, he becomes the king. That, see, it's interesting how quickly the Jewish people forgave the Binyaminites, that they elected a king. The first Jewish king was from the tribe of Binyamin, one of these 600. But what he was, and from was he from the, 400 that received the initial 400 girls or was he so we find out no he was one of the 200 men that needed to grab for himself a wife from the 200 from the girls dancing in the vineyard now when he went out to the vineyard he was very shy he was not a grabber so he didn't what happened is one of the girls his wife who later is his wife, I don't know her name, she saw him. He was extraordinarily handsome and exuberating and incredible charisma. Like we know, it says about King Saul that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was, And she took a liking to him and she ran after him instead of him having to persuade her. Like the, if we will say that they were told to grab, it was initiated more by the men than by the women. But in this particular case, she went after him. That's why when um, Shoal gets angry at his son, Jonathan, Yonatan, and he yells at him because Yonatan is protecting David, he tells him, you son of the rebellious woman, Ben Navas Amardas. Why does he call her rebellious woman? Because she acted in a way that was considered 
on the lack of modesty. She was going after him instead of him courting her, which was in those days, obviously, the way it was that the men were. It was a very different world. Let's understand something like that. I imagine so. The fact that a woman would go go and 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 reach for her first, especially in the hot in the in the more uh, you know religious circles and so on and that it was just unheard of. His mother did that, and that's why he called her a a rebellious woman, the son of the rebellious woman. In any case, because it was his problem, because he was shy, right? But in the end, that's what happens. That's the story. So Rashi says. When Yaakov is blessing, and this is the shocker, obviously you're, this question should really be asked the second we learn this, we should right away ask the question. When Jacob is blessing the tribe of Binyamin, he says, you will be a wolf that grabs. So Rashi says, what's the grabbing of Binyamin? Well, Rashi says, go out and grab yourself a wife. That the Benyamites were grabbing the girls to take them for wives. That's the fulfillment of this prophecy. So what's the obvious question? What's to be proud of this whole story? This story is such a negative story. We're talking about Yaakov giving blessed. Now, that part of the story is obviously the least of the negative part. Okay, we can understand. They needed, it was an emergency situation. They needed to get married. There was no tikkun for these men. There was no way. Now, Otherwise, you say, go jump in the lake. You can't get married. You can't get married. What are you going to do? But in this case, it was impossible. They needed to rebuild, and 400 men wasn't enough. They felt they needed to rebuild the tribe of Binyamin very fast. These men were the lone survivors. Um, now it was time that they needed to have wives. So they went and they found them, these 200, 200 girls. Okay. So, and again, as we said, it couldn't be the, they couldn't do it in the, in the uh, what do you call it, traditional way. They couldn't do it in the in the normal way that it was done because they weren't allowed to do it that way because no one was allowed to make an official shidduch, an official marriage suggestion with the tribe of Binyamin. So they had to do it this way. So it was kind of the only solution in a very negative situation, but it's still a negative situation. Now, what makes matters worse is that Rashi doesn't only bring the verse that a man should grab a woman, Rashi actually adds the Pilegesh Hagiva. Now, where is this story told? You should know this is at the story of the concubine at Giva, which makes everybody, which makes everybody um, horrified when you hear the story. You just have to hear the words Pilegesh Begiva and you're troubled. How can you not be troubled? And this is the blessing of Jacob for the tribe of Binyamin. This sounds more like a curse than a blessing. What's the blessing over here? Now let's continue. Now, and, okay. Now Rashi turns it around and makes it actually beautiful. Rashi says, in addition to Jacob's prophecy about Binyamin grabbing, the, the descendants of Benjamin grabbing wives, in addition to that, also prophesied regarding King Saul. King Saul we just mentioned is one of the descendants of, of, of Binyamin, of Benjamin. So part of the wolf prophecy is that King Saul would be victorious on his enemies. He fought many battles. So the wolf, the comparison to the wolf, wolves lose very few fights. Wolves, when they go out for a hunt, they usually win. Even I watched, I watched these, I like these animal videos. 
it comes up on my YouTube all the time, maybe because I watched once. And then I, I, I watch a lot about bears and about the wilderness. I like going out into the wilderness. I like to hype myself up and get scared about the bears in the wilderness. Any case, so, so they always bring up these these fights that take place sometimes. People capture these incredible animals where, where bears and wolves are, are, uh, are at each other. Okay, and the wolves win a lot of times because usually the bear, are, the bears, even the grizzlies, they're 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 solo hunters, and wolves are in large packs. Because they're such large packs, they're incredibly vicious. So much so that they can actually take down a bear, or at least scare the the bear away. Um, you have many of these, many of these events. So the wolves, so they usually win. So King Saul, Shalamelech, is compared to a wolf. Now what? That he was victorious over his enemies in battle. Shanema Rashi brings a verse that says, "Vishal lachad amalucha." Shaul fortified his kingship after the wars that he fought against the Philistines. He fought against the Moabites, and he fought against the Edomites. And wherever he turned, he was Yarshias. The, the meaning in the context that we are learning now is he was victorious. The literal meaning of the word Yarshia means he terrorized. The fact that it uses meaning, he 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 was wicked. Or the other word for Yarshia comes from the word Russia. Russia means wicked, which is a strange word to use on King Saul. It means over here, wicked doesn't mean morally wrong. Wicked means he was ferocious. In battle against the enemies of Israel, he took care of business. And he won the battles and he was and they and they and everybody was terrified. That's what the verse is. So talking about Jacob is prophesizing about uh, the Jewish people. He prophesizes about the grab, the 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 devouring nature of Binyamin. Rashi tells us it's referring to two prophecies lumped in one. One is regarding the grabbing element of the the children of Binyamin during the during the Pelegesh Begiva grab catastrophe and then a later that king saul is the one who is devouring the enemy fine then rashi continues the verse says in the morning he eats the plunder and in the evening he divides the spoils so rashi learns this referring to two periods of history um in the morning is referring to the beginning the dawn of the jewish history so who's at the early time of jewish history King Saul. So we're continuing with Shaul because he's the first king. He's called the morning. And when it says that he eats plunder, what does that mean? It means that when he won the victories that we just spoke about, because he's a wolf that devours, he would come home with all the plunder. So the verse is emphasizing two things, the victory itself and then the spoils that he would bring home, his armies would bring home uh, back from the battlefield. What does it mean in the evening they will split the the they will split divide the spoils? Evening is referring to after the sun sets for the Jewish people. That's referring to a couple of hundred years later when the temple was destroyed, the first temple, we went into exile, and towards the end of the Babylonian exile, towards the end of the seventy years, tonight is a Sarabateus, the night that begins the Babylonian exile, the tenth day of Tevis, we commemorate that. So at the conclusion of the Babylonian exile, um, 
there is the famous Purim story, where the heroes of the story are Mordechai and Esther. And Mordechai and Esther are descendants of Binyamin. So that makes whoever is over here, sitting over here listening to my class, happier. Because at least somebody survived the Shevet Binyamin and a pretty nice people. By the way, I'd like to tell you, um, most of us are descendants of Binyamin because the 10 tribes were taken out of the side. Who's left? The Jewish people that we know today as the Jewish people that are not the 10 tribes are descendants of a mix of Yehuda and Binyamin. And so, he did the fixing and the punishment was given swift and immediate. And it was led to horrible consequences. But in the end, what do we have? Mordechai and Esther, when it says that they divide the spoils, Rashi says, what does it mean they divide the spoils? So Rashi says, yes, they, they, um, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia then, was ready to kill all the Jew- Jewish people based on the wicked um, a plan by Haman, by Haman. Achishverosh now takes the house of Haman and he gives it to Esther. And he says to Esther, the house of Haman I have given to you. That means dividing the spoils. In the evening, we take the enemy's property. Haman is the enemy who was going to actually exterminate all of Israel, all of the Jewish people. And now not only was did he fail, but actually his entire possession and his entire wealth went into the house of Esther and Mordechai, who are descendants of Binyamin. So here you have again grabbing the spoils. Rashi brings the verse. Um, the house of Haman I will give to Esther. Okay. This is the general Rashi that's here. And let's analyze a little bit based on the question that I asked you earlier. We are saying, and as Rashi again, there's going to be a little bit of an analysis on this on this Rashi commentary, but it's going to lead us to a very, very, very rich and beautiful understanding of the true nature of Binyam. Although in the outer level, it seems to be like this is a very, very dark story. But let's get a little deeper. It is a dark story. I'm not going to change the nature of the story, but the outcome of that is we're going to see soon. So the question over here is, we're trying to figure out what is in Jacob's mind. You realize all blessings are given in poetic language. When blessings are given, it's, it's, it's a channeling of divine. It's a prophecy. And prophecies, many times when they come, they come allegorically. They come metaphorically. And that's why you find that when Bilam gives his blessings, it, they're, all, they're all poetic. So Yaakov was also speaking in poetry. And therefore, the words can be interpreted for many different things. As we see commentators all interpret differently. So what brought Rashi to choose? Now, this interpretation that this is referring to the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Rashi says it's referring to two things. Binyamin, the the, the tribe of Binyamin, the descendants by the story of Pelegish Begiva, where they grabbed the wives. Right? where they were told to grab for themselves wives. It's literally the word grabbing. And then later, uh, by King Saul, 
that he was w- wickedly defeating his enemies. And that's the devouring of the wolf. Now, amongst the commentators, there are much prettier um, um, interpretations of this prophecy. Less violent, more making it far more holier and more beautiful. For example, the Targum says, this has nothing to do with battle, with bloodshed. It's nothing to do with, with women grabbing. This story, this is referring to the Holy Temple. That, in the, in, that we know that the temple, the Beis Amigdash, was situated on, on, it straddled two tribes, Yehuda and Binyamin. The Holy of Holies was in the tribe of Yehuda. But the courtyard of the temple means the border, just like we have, you know, the California-Arizona border, right? Or the, the, the border between New York and New Jersey. As you're going over the bridge, two weeks ago, I was going over the bridge, or three weeks ago, and I said, welcome to New Jersey, as I was going over one of the bridges. Yeah. Um, so the border of the Judah property, the Judah land, and Binyamin land, ran right across the Holy Temple. The courtyard of the temple, where all the sacrifices were brought on the altar, was in the territory of Benjamin, of Binyam. So the Targum, Unculus, translates that when it says Binyamin is a wolf that devours, it's referring to the altar that's in the tribe of Binyamin, and it's devouring all the animals. It's a wolf. And that's why we find a, fa- a famous story where one of the, a woman during the time of the Greek uh, Hanukkah story during when the Greeks were destroying the temple and desecrating the temple, there was a girl from the, one of the Kohen families that came to watch the, 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 the devastation. And she got so angry at God for not protecting the Jewish people, even though she was, her name was Miriam. And she got so angry that there was so much bloodshed, there was so much uh, uh, suffering and torture going on that bothered her. And she felt that God is not defending Israel. So she took her, her shoe and she slapped the altar and she yelled, Lucas, Lucas, how long are you going to consume the flesh of their sacrifices and not stand up for them when they need you? That was her outburst. Lucas means wolf. She refers to the, to the, to the, to the altar, wolf, wolf. Uh, a wolf is, a, is, 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 is an entity that eats meat. Right, it's a, it's a, it's a predator, and it eats and it devours. In that sense, the altar is devouring the the, the sacrifices. Isn't that prettier? We're talking about an altar, people are bringing sacrifices. The sacrifices are to bring atonement and to connect to God. And in the tribe of Binyamin is where that altar is, and that's so beautiful. Rashi, for whatever reason, decides to ignore this. Rashi, a lot of times, brings the Targum. Rashi has the Targum. Rashi read for, and many times Rashi says, "Look in the Targum. Targum gives you the right, the good." Here, Rashi ignores the Targum totally. And Rashi, now the Midrash gives another few interpretations. Rashi ignores all of those. Seemingly, the worst story you can possibly pick and throw and puts it in over the Binyamin. Where do you find that, that their devour is the fact that they, that they were told to grab for themselves wives? And now, that, that's the question we're asking here. Why is... And moreover, Rashi himself gives a second interpretation. And the way Rashi puts it is that 
Jacob had two prophecies. He prophesied about two things, about the 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 story of Plegesh Begiva, the this 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 story that happened, and regarding uh, 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 King Saul's victories. Now, King Saul's victories is a good thing. Okay, war is never pretty, but if it's against the bad guys that needed to be destroyed, and he did a good job doing it, that's that that's that's something that is something to write home about. That's a nice blessing that he will take care of, he will do what he needs to do as a king, protect the Jewish people, and uh, conquer the land of Israel, that which or whatever was supposed to happen. So that's not a bad story. So who told Rashi that there were two prophecies? It's, it's Rashi's giving, on one word, Binyamin Za'ev Yitro, if Rashi says, he prophesied about two things. Who said it was two things? Say it was only the second thing, and then you don't have to, you don't have to bring up this dark, negative story. It's a curse. To make matters worse, to stick it in your face, Rashi doesn't, many times when Rashi brings a verse, Rashi doesn't tell you what the subject is, where that verse is. Rashi just says, he brings a verse, look at that verse. Rashi doesn't tell you. That verse is part of this story. You'll figure out what story it's part of. Rashi just quotes the verse. Why did Rashi have to tell us over here that it's Pelegesh Begiva? It's at the story of the concubine at the in, in the Gibo, in, in, in the Giv, in, in the in the city of Giva, which is only highlighting the negativity of the story. Because if you only focus on the last part of the story, in which they were told to go and take for themselves wives, the unconventional way, the non-traditional way, not that nice. Uh, looks, it seems at least from the simple reading, it was a little bit violent that they grabbing the woman. Uh, we needed commentaries to explain it was without the parents' consent, or at least the parents were not suggesting. That that's half a problem. But when Rashi throws in the words Pelegish Begiva, which means that the Binyamin, why did this? Why were they in such a situation where they didn't have anybody to marry? So Rashi tells you because it's Pelegish Begiva's story where Binyamin did the most ferocious, heinous crime and what they did to this poor girl. So if this is the case, why is Rashi telling you that? He's ruining these beautiful blessings. No. Everything else is so nice. And this is so it's so negative. And it's in the last verse. So this is the taste you walk away with. I'm sorry for ruining it for everybody because most people don't even notice this. It's long Rashi's in the blessings. And the time you get to here, you're like just going through your, your chumash quickly. So, but I'm now highlighting this dark story right at the end of the blessings. Why? Why give you this? Okay. So that's the question. Um, what I'm sharing with you now is a talk from the Rebbe, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in which he analyzes the Rashi. He tears this Rashi apart. With so many questions, I'm going to leave out a lot of them because uh, it it gets technical. Um, what what I will continue is um, once Rashi does settle that the the um, oh now we could perhaps suggest the reason why. The reason why we don't suffice by saying the prophecy is the prophecy about King Saul. And instead, we also need to bring in the first story. Is because one can argue 
the prophecy about King Saul, that's the, that's the rest of the verse. The verse says in the morning he takes plunder. Rashi says it's referring to King Saul. So if we're going to learn the beginning of the verses, only speaking about King Saul, about Shaul HaMelech, so it's like, and it's the same thing. He goes to war and he takes, and he takes plunder. Then the first half of the verse, the second half of the verse, there's nothing new there. It's just the same thing being repeated. Which if you look in most verses, every little phrase is laden with meaning, is loaded with meaning. But over here you have like a long phrase that's all talking about one thing and it's just redoubling the same story. That's why Rashi felt it was two stories. One is one story and the other is the other story. We possibly could try to give that as an answer. And that's what made Rashi say this. However, if that would have been the case, as I mentioned earlier, Rashi could have found a prettier explanation for the first half of the verse. Yes, something else, not referring to King uh, King Saul. Uh, but like we said earlier, talk about the holy temple. The temple is where they is 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 where 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 Benjamin is compared to a wolf. I mean, technically, you can argue. I'm giving you all the all the all the refutations. You can argue and you can say that if you say it's referring to the temple, then it's not something about the Binyamin people. It's about the it's about the um, the land of Binyamin. It's about the 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 altar that was in the in the territory of Binyamin. But the verse seems to be implying a blessing regarding the people themselves, not regarding the something in their territory. Okay. Further, um, when Rashi does tell you the second half that it's referring to King Saul, the Shola Melech, Rashi says, So Rashi brings an entire verse. This verse is in uh, Shmuel Aleph, Samuel number one, chapter 14, verse 47. Now, Rashi is usually very, the style of Rashi is Rashi is very short and concise. If he brings a verse, he brings only the words in the verse that are important to him. He doesn't bring you the entire verse. Rashi usually just says, if it's important, etc. Even if it's important. In a case where it's not important at all, he just he just leaves it. How come over here? To interpret how King Saul is compared to a wolf is that he fought many battles and he won, as it says. Why does Rashi have to bring the end of the verse? In everywhere he turns, he was wicked. Why is that added here? Especially since that could be seen in not such a good light. In other words, Rashi keeps on throwing in over here all these like negative triggers. He's already speaking about King Saul. What is he saying? And everywhere he turns, he terrorizes. Come on. <laughs> Leave that out. He won the battles. He won the war. Fine. Why the wicked? And to make it, now you'll say, well, come on, Rashi, just bringing the verse. Well, these aren't, these commentators that come, this commentary that Rashi says is already stated in the Midrash. 
in two Midrash, Midrash Rabbah and Midrash Tanchuma. Both these Midrashim bring this. And both of them omit the end of the verse. So Rashi is painstakingly adding more than what the Midrash says. Because you understand why they're leaving it out. Because that, that, that part of the verse doesn't seem too pretty. So why is Rashi making an effort to throw that in? Finally, when Rashi tells us what it means when it says, in the evening he divided the plunder. The words Rashi uses, remember I said it's referring to Mordechai and Esther in the story of Purim. Rashi says, Mordechai and Esther Shehim ibn Yavin. They show up in the evening of Jewish history. Because during the time of exile, it's called evening. Um, Mordechai, they're, in the, they're from the tribe of Binyamin. Yechalku, they, devi- they divided Eshlal Haman, the, the, uh, the spoils of Haman. Shanemar, it says, as base Haman nasati la Esther. The house of Haman I gave to Esther. Here's small little questions. They're not major questions, but small little things to notice. And that is as follows. First of all, why does Rashi have to tell you more than once that it's Haman? Mordechai and Esther, Mordechai and Esther, they are from Binyamin. Yechalku, they divide as Shalal, the, 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 the spoils. And because he read in, in, the, in the verse that he's going to bring, he's going to tell you that it's Haman. He wants to say that Yechalik Shalal, they're dividing Shalal, the dividing spoils. So you should say Mordechai and Esther, they were taking the, the spoils. As it says, the house of Haman, Asati Liesta. Why the emphasis two times that it's Haman? Taking into consideration that Rashi is usually as short and concise as possible. To make the, and another, another thing to note. Um, if you're talking about spoils that were a loot in the time of the story of the Megillah, of the story of Purim, if you're looking, if you're looking for loot, why does Rashi bring the verse, the house of Haman I've given to Esther? There's no mention of loot. We understand that since he's taking the enemy's house and giving it to them, that's like loot. But there's no loot mentioned there. If you're looking for spoils and loot, it's mentioned openly in the Megillah. What does it say? Ahasuerus says to the Jewish people, Permission is granted to you to fight your enemies. After the after he retracted the, the old decree, he, he, he didn't retract it. He couldn't retract the decree. The Jews were the 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 the, the enemies, the anti semites, were given permission to harm the Jewish people, to kill them, to destroy them. Then, when Esther came and pleaded the case with Mordechai and and, and, and Achishverus has a reversal, what does he do? He says, I can't pull back the first decree, but I'm going to arm the Jewish people and give them all the permission to fight back and actually assist them in their in their fight. And he adds over there that they can kill all their enemies and their spoils will be to plunder. It says so explicitly in the verse, Ushlalam Lavoz. That would have been a much better verse because over there it says specifically, Ushlalam, which is the word that says over here, Yechalek they divide. Shalol, shalol means spoil. You find the exact same word in the Megillah. That's much better. That's showing you what it says over here. If the prophecy comes true over here, the word shalol. Rashi omits that. No, not that. Instead, he brings the verse that the house of Haman was given to Esther. 
So now, now, why now? In addition to the fact that it doesn't mention the word shalom over there, spoils. There's another problem. Spoils and loot is usually during a war. During wartime, there is loot and there are spoils. That's the common, the common, the common uh, uh, term. The house of Haman was given to Esther and to Mordechai before the whole war. Actually, 11 months before the war. Because if you know the story of the Megillah, uh, 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 the story of Purim, Haman suggests Achashverosh to kill out all the Jewish people. They make the edicts and everything. Esther calls for a fast day for three days. This is in the month of Nisan. This is Pesach time. April time. March, April. They, they, but, but the day of the the day that was set to kill the Jewish people is the following year in March, okay, in Adar. The following year. So it was going to be a whole year of preparation. What happened was Esther managed to turn the whole thing around within a couple of days because they had a massive fast. And Esther, Esther goes and beautifies herself. She comes to the king. You got that whole story. And she takes down Haman on, on, on the, uh, a few days later. Haman is hung on a tree in Pesach, he's hung, Passover. And then Achashverosh goes and he takes the, the house of Haman and he gives it to them. The war didn't even start. The war took place 11 months later. Since there were still anti-Semites, they were excited to wipe out the Jews. That's when the Jews went out to war and they won the war. And that's when there was plunder. That's where there is but the house that was given from Haman to, to Esther and to Mordechai, it's not during a war. It happened a couple of months earlier. So if you're looking for a plunder, which is the usual term of loot and plunder, speak, and it says openly in the verse, but Rashi, for whatever reason, doesn't want that, and he's bringing this verse. So to understand all of this, very simple. And this is the Rebbe's brilliance. And the Rebbe says like this, analyzing all of this. The Rebbe says what Rashi is, is, is prompted him to make all these changes that we're talking about now and with his precise, perfect language was the fact that we're comparing Binyamin not just to a devouring animal. There are many animals that devour. But the way that a, to a wolf and the way a wolf does it is that a wolf rips the animal away or, or tears or a wolf is a grabber. Sometimes you actually see that there are other animals that make a kill. Uh, one of these, these, these movies, one of these YouTube clips that I see, many, you know, they come up from time. You know, a bear makes a kill and the wolves come and try to grab the carcass away, the dead animal away. They're grabbers. And what they usually do is when they kill something, they don't want anybody to bother them. They know because because they're such grabbers, they don't want to it. They take the animal and they drag the animal with them into their den, into their lair. And over there, they eat the animal. So they're literally, that's their nature. They grab. So the emphasis on grabbing, and what does grabbing mean? Taking against the will of the person that you're that 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 it is being taken from. Now, 
Usually grabbing is a very negative trait, obviously. But here we find that there is an element of holiness to this, as we're soon going to see. How does that manifest in our lives? And how can we have this grabbing element in, in where it's a virtue and a good thing? But what's the grabbing? So for that reason, we'll start. Rashi couldn't, Rashi wasn't happy with Targum. Targum Onkelos, the Targum is such a beautiful period. That we have an altar and we offer sacrifices because nothing is being grabbed over there. Actually, all the people are bringing their sacrifices with a full heart. No one was allowed to be even forced to bring the sacrifice. One of the rules by sacrifices is that it has to be to the will of the bringer. It was Liritzono. So all the people are offering their sacrifices. There's no grabbing. The altar is like a wolf. That's In that case, he's like a wolf that every, everybody's feeding him. It's the wolf in the zoo. He's not the wolf. He's not the, it's not the wolf. It's not the wolf in the wild. Because the wolf in the wild is grabbing its prey. Here there's no grabbing. So Rashi therefore didn't feel it was an approach. Yaakov is using a term and has to match. This is also the reason why Rashi wasn't so excited to say it's King Saul. By the way, the, the Medrash says that it's King Saul, the word that he grabs the kingdom. He was the first one to become king over Israel. It's called, he grabs the throne. He's the first Jewish king. But over there as well, and why didn't Rashi, one of the questions, I didn't ask it before. Why couldn't Rashi use that? That King Saul grabbed the throne. He's the, meaning the first person to take the throne. But again, there's no grabbing there. The Jewish people called for King Saul's kingship. They asked it. It was, a, it, was with the, it was with the consent. Not only that, there was no king, and the Jews came to King to Samuel, to Shmuel and Avi, and they said, we want a king. And he looked for somebody, and everybody approved of it. So there was no grabbing against the will. That's why that does not suffice. And even wars, which is against the will, but doesn't emphasize so much the grabbing as we're going to see. That's why Rashi has to find Something which emphasizes taking something and grabbing against the will. So Rashi brings where it says by the children of Binyamin that you should go and grab yourself a wife. Now, as we mentioned earlier, on the literal sense, it doesn't mean, and as the, as the commentators explain, they didn't grab these women because in Torah law, you are not allowed to coerce a woman to be a wife. It must be with consent. It is not permissible. But still the Torah uses the term they grabbed because based on the norms of having family consent, and in this case it wasn't, it was considered grab. But this is, in a sense, in this case you even see the parents saying, no, we don't want to marry our daughter, Shamaria Binyamin. You know what? If someone has to marry them, let someone else find. Everybody was angry at Binyamin. So in that sense, it is a grabbing, at least against the will of the family. So there is an element of taking something against, taking something away, which, which has the element of gravity. Rashi emphasizes, doesn't just tell you that little part. He says it happened by Pelegesh Begiva. And here's where the Rebbe makes it so beautiful. What Rashi is alluding to is not just this little detail where they took the 200 girls to marry the, the other where they, 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 would, they met them at the, at, the, at the vineyard. Rashi is trying to allude to the entire general story, which is as follows. As we mentioned earlier, negative story, very negative story. 
But this last piece of the story, in which the family of Binyamin was, the Jewish people are sitting there and scratching their heads to figure out how they can help the, 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 the survival of the tribe of Binyamin. Why were the Jewish people doing that? This was the enemy. This was like, and they were, you can see, their wrath was so ignited. They were so, what, at best, leave them alone and they'll fence for themselves. They'll figure it out. It's our problem. Why were they so concerned about these 600 men? The answer was because there's something that these 600 men did to change it all around. Tense remorse. They did what it took to evoke the compassion and the pity of the Jewish people and the change of heart towards them. So what happens, therefore? You have the Binyamin, the remaining 600 men from the tribe of Binyamin that are in a very, very lowly and unfavorable state. They just came down. They just are concluding a very, the darkest moment in their history. They have a dark blotch of a stain on every single one of these guys remaining. They're embarrassed to walk anywhere to show their face. They are the, 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 um, they are the, the ultimate, uh, Criminals. I mean, look at them. No one wants. No one wants to associate with them. Everybody said not marry their daughters. And the and these men of Binyamin were able to grab themselves out from this very lowly state and elevate themselves to a high place that, that it turned around and they can be the rebuilders of the tribe of Binyamin. So their grabbing was a meaning to say. Based on normalcy, based on the situation, if we would go through the, the ordinary channels and the ordinary thing, it would take maybe 30, 40, 50 years for these people to save face and be able to come back and be accepted to the Jewish people. And for, the, and for themselves to be able to come out of their, of their dark state, which they had fallen into. The fact that they were able to overnight transform the story so much so that everybody else was concerned. Everybody became a shatran for them. Imagine that. Suddenly, the, all the Jewish people are doing matchmaking for them. They're trying to figure out how we can get them. They go and they get them the 400 girls and then they're getting them 200 this. How did this happen? These are the worst of the worst. How did this happen? This is the ability to be able to grab. Grab who? In this case, grab yourself. Grab yourself from a dark place. What does the wolf do? He goes in into a certain place. This animal is, and he grabs it and runs away with it. To be able to grab yourself from the epitome of darkness, from the epitome of, 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 of being shunned and being at the lowest state, and to be able to do such shuva, that's the point of it. Binyamin's power was the enormous power of transformation, of shuva, of repentance, of, of, of a complete a complete, you might say, metamorphosis in the sense that they can turn themselves away around from being at the very bottom. They ripped themselves from that dark, low place and elevated themselves to a high place. And that's what Rashi is hinting to, to Plegish Begiva. It's not just this story that they grabbed, that they were told to go grab a wife. It was the trans, the, they grabbed and picked themselves up so swiftly, not in a gradual way where you're kind of like everything 
everything is already, everybody consents to it, including yourself. They didn't wait till they even got their own self-approval to approve this. They just knew they needed to do what they needed to do and turn everything around. For that reason, we also find that the when Rashi continues and tells us that um, it's also referring to King Saul. Now, why do we say it's also referring to King Saul? Is because if we read that it's if, if that it's only referring to the children of Binyamin. The, the, the story of Plagish Bagiva, then the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse have no relationship whatsoever. And as you see in all the other verses, they're different parts to a story, but they all have relationship. Here it's a complete unrelated story. Therefore, Rashi wants to put in also the interpretation regarding that it refers to King Saul, because if in that case you could draw a certain con- continuity between the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse. However, However, you can't just say that Saul's um, 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 comparison to the wolf is that he won battles. He fought wars and he won. Because that doesn't emphasize grabbing, taking something from the other side. That's why Rashi interprets and Rashi says he doesn't just bring the beginning of the verse that he won battles, but he brings the end of the verse that wherever he turned, Yarshia. Yarshia means he was wicked. Again, the real meaning of the verse is he won the battle. Wherever he touched, he was successful and he achieved victory. But the literal word means he was wicked. What, why, why are we mentioning that? Because that's exactly the quality of Binyam. The quality of Binyam is they can take something which is negative, bad, and generally associated with really dark and un- a and, and negative thing, and grab that into holiness. Following? King Saul took wickedness and he utilized wickedness, so to speak, in a holy, godly way. So he wasn't wicked. So in other, it's a, it's a, it's a taking of a, in this itself is where you see the wolf, the wolf nature. To take a negative, something that is so negative, and generally a word that is used for a Russia, Russia means a wicked person, and everything he turned, Yarshia, in his holy battles. He utilized the trait, it's like you say, but sometimes about an amazing good person who, is a, who does, you say about him, he's, he's wicked. He's like a wicked um, a hero. A hero who, who like just goes in and, 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 and destroys all the bad guys. And you call him like wickedly, wickedly beautiful in that sense. Shoal was wickedly beautiful. So he took the wickedness and used it as, so to speak, in holiness. So you see how Rashi is so precise that he, because he wants to find the nature of the wolf in which you're taking, you're grabbing, you're taking something from, from, from a place where it doesn't, from, 
You're ripping something from its natural place and bringing it somewhere else. Finally, in the in the in the in the in the evening, when Rashi translates, Rashi's continually remembering in all the parts of the verse, he remembers the wolf. You always have to bring it back because the rest of the verse is an interpretation of it being a wolf who is grabbing. So you have to find that element in the various parts of the verse further as well. So when you get when it says in the evening, he divides the spoils. The fact that they won a war and they took the spoils doesn't emphasize that much. Rashi wants to find that you took something that belonged to the other side. Who is the who is the main wickedness and the main darkness of the whole Purim story? You have Haman, and that's why Rashi emphasizes Haman. We're talking about Haman. And he mentions that they that they took Haman's property. Rashi doesn't just say they, they took spoils. No, they took Haman's property, Haman's house, which he lived in. And in that house is where he had all his meetings to scheme and, and to come and to, and to, and to make and to, and to plan the worst of the worst. And that very same house became the whole, a holy house for Mordechai and Esther and became probably the seat where they led and developed everything good for the, for the Jewish people and for the furtherance and then eventually to go rebuild the temple and so on and so forth. Probably the parliament meetings were held in that home. That very house of Haman. So this, this emphasizes the grabbing. You're grabbing something from your enemy's territory, converting it to holiness. Shoal grabs. He grabs. Um, the house of David. Uh, the house of... Um, uh, the house of Esther, Mordechai, and Esther grab the very enemy's headquarters, and that becomes a transformation for a, for a place of holiness. And Binyamin and the children of Binyamin at the story of Plegish Begiva grab themselves from a place of darkness, from a lowly place, and transform themselves like this. From being such dark people, suddenly everybody's seeking their welfare and they want to help them out. That's the power of it. Now you see, it's interesting. You see that this flows in the blood of the children of Bidyam. If you know one of the stories it says about King Saul, the famous story that ultimately caused Saul to fall. This was his big, big boo-boo. This was his big mistake. Was when God commanded him to go to fight against Amalek and kill all the Amalekites. So he goes out to battle and he comes back. And Shmuel says to him, do, did you? He says, I fulfilled God's will. And Shmuel says, did you? Did you? What, what is the sound of the sheep that I hear? So he says, I, I had mercy on the sheep and I decided I want to bring him as sacrifices. And, and, and Samuel says to him, he didn't listen. Listening is more important than all the sacrifices. Just plain listening. So not going in. See, here's, here's the thing. Ultimately, a Jew has to listen to God's will. That's your job, always to listen. And that overrides everything. But Shoal was actually acting on his wolf instinct. He has a wolf instinct inside of him from his grandfather. And that is to grab dark things and to turn it over. 
to grab wickedness and use it for holiness. To grab Amalek, they, their very cattle and their very animals and turn them to sacrifices for God for holiness. That's the biggest transformation possible. It's the grabbing. Why was he wrong? He was wrong because at this moment, God said no grabbing. And even if you have a character to grab, if God tells you now, quiet, God overrides. And he was not open for God's override, and that's why he sinned. But the sin itself is consistent with his character, with the character of the wolf, which is the, what, what characterizes all the descendants of Binyamin, that they have this ability. On a deeper level, let's understand this. On a deeper level, we know that the Zohar says that Yosef and Binyamin, Joseph and Binyamin, the two brothers, the two children of Rachel, of Rachel, they are both the level of tzaddik. They're both tzaddikim. More than all the other tribes, they were tzaddikim. Tzaddikim means saintly, righteous people. But Joseph, Yosef is called tzaddik Elyon, the supernal tzaddik, and Benjamin, Binyamin, is called tzaddik Tachton, the lower tzaddik. What does it mean, the tzaddik from above and the tzaddik from below? The two tzaddikim, the two righteous, are both meant are both meant to reveal godliness in this world. That's what a tzaddik's job is, to reveal Hashem, to reveal godliness in this world. The supernal tzaddik is the one who brings, reveals godliness into this world by being a channel for God, by being a faucet, by being a flow of light from above. A beacon of light from above. That's what we find by Joseph. What, what did he do? He's feeding the entire family. It's almost like God uses Joseph to be the instrument. I'm feeding you. I'm taking care of the family. He is the funnel through which God's blessing comes to the world. He saved the whole world from hunger, from a famine. But he's the divine messenger from above. He's coming from heaven down to earth. That's his nature of his soul. That's the way he's at tzaddik. Binyamin is lifting the earth up to heaven. Binyamin's work, tzaddik tachter, the lower tzaddik, is refining the lower world, refining the world, elevating it, elevating it, and therefore making the physical world into a vessel, into a recipient, to be able to receive godly light. Similar to the difference between Avram and Yitzchak. Avram was showering holiness from above. Isaac was purifying from below. That was his job. Similar to that is Yosef and Binyamin. If that's the case, Binyamin then, even though he's a tzaddik, his service of God is very, very much like what we call the Balchuva. Balchuva means the penitent. Penitent means a person who started off his life, not his or her life, not exactly doing the right things. Or maybe they started off well, but then went off track. And as a result of mistakes, and more mistakes, and sometimes a lot of mistakes, and sometimes intentional mistakes, or whatever it is, end up, end up, end up in the worst of the worst. And they have a lot of darkness in them. But then, because of the enormous power that God has given each and every one of us to do teshuva, to do repentance, so the power of the, of the penitent, the one who does teshuva, is enormous. Because when a person does teshuva, comes back, and we know that as long as we're alive, we can always do tshuva. So when we do tshuva, when we turn around, when we're doing tshuva and when we turn around, we know that 
it's an amazing thing happens. We take darkness itself and turn it to light. The sages tell us that when a person does tshuva, their sins turns to merit. Not only they're forgiven for their sins, not that God doesn't look at their sins, their very sins themselves, the very, very dark stuff that they did becomes a merit. It's no more a darkness. It's not a dark stain. It's a brilliant diamond. It's a brilliant light in their life. How is that possible? A sin belongs to the unholy, to the other side. A sin is evil. A sin belongs to the dark side. It is a, 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 it, a it's full of klipa. Klipa means this satanic energy, shells, dark stuff. How can you take that and it doesn't? Well, that's what the Bolshuva does. The Bolshuva is a wolf. He's a grabber. He grabs dark matter and drags it into holiness, into the territory of goodness. We all have the quality of wolf inside of us. We all have that quality to be able to grab the darkest things and turn them over. Where do we have, where does it come from? To, one of the things about the Balchuva, there is two things about the penitent. There is what he affects and the power from where he is affecting it. He or she is affecting it. What a, a penitent affects is a tzaddik spreads holiness around the whole world and elevates those things that are elevatable. There are dark things in this world that were able to crack the darkness and extract the goodness that's buried inside it, as we discussed many times. But then there are stuff that are so dark that you can't, you can't extract anything from them. They're dark, 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 even though they do have a little spark, but that spark is buried so deep, it's unextractable. And if you try to extract it, it will drag you into its darkness like a black hole. I mean, we're not coming out of it. It's an impossible suction. That's what the darkness of Klippa is. And yet, there are people that slip and fall and get sucked into this black hole and go farther and farther and farther. And yet, they manage to... to pull themselves out, not only to pull themselves out from this ever degenerating force, darkness that's pulling and pulling and pulling, they manage to break free, but even more so, they turn the entire darkness into an explosive, brilliant light that rocks the entire world and the cosmos with an unbelievable brilliance. How do they do that? That's the enormous power of the Balchuk. To do tshuva, you need enormous strength, and that's the strength of the wolf. The wolf is a very strong animal. So the ability that it can take, the, it can take, it can rip things out. It can rip sparks that are not extractable. It can rip dark, it can take darkness itself outside of the domain and darkness and bring it into holiness. That's impossible, and yet they can do the impossible. That's what Jacob was benching Binyamin with. You have enormous power. And the Rebbe adds, the Rebbe adds. Just like the power of Binyamin is taking dark things from below and converting it and therefore taking it, grabbing it from, 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 from where it is stuck or where it really belongs and doing an impossible thing, bringing something evil and wicked and bringing it into holiness, 
the Rebbe says, the implication and the effects of that is another form of grabbing that takes place. And that is as well. When we take, so here's, a, here's an amazing teaching, it's an amazing idea. When we are serving God in an ordinary fashion, through ordinary goodness that we do, we activate the channels of holiness and we increase the flow of the divine, of the divine flow from higher into the world. We increase the, we stimulate the divine flow. The more goodness we do, the more intense the flow is. But as high as we, but as much as we pump, as much as we stimulate, we're only reaching from within a certain framework, from within the, the system of holiness. Then there is the holiness that is not meant to be part of creation. It's not meant to come into the world. Such infinite light, the world can't handle it, and it's never meant to be present within the world. And all the righteous people can't can't reach that light, and they for sure can't drag that light or or pull that light into the world. Then comes the penitent, comes the baltruva, comes the returnee, and he activates his or her wolf quality. And just like they grab a dark aspect of their life, and when they do proper teshuva and repentance, they take this very darkness and move it from its where 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 it naturally is and pull it into holiness in a way of grabbing in the same way we grab infinite light that is meant to be above the world and bring that into creation that's also grabbing whatever the wolf has is grabbed is grabbed is loot is grabbing it's almost like you bust the wolf everything he has was taken illegally but that's the quality of the wolf he breaks all the rules, all the all the worlds, all of the spiritual rules as well. Transforms transforms darkness to light and transforms supernal darkness. What do we say supernal darkness? We mean the infinite lights that are called darkness because the world can't handle them. And even those lights are brought into the world and made manifest within as a result of the power of Vinyan. An enormous power of truth. And that is why the Binyam, that's the reason why after this, and that's why they took this negative story of Pelegish Begiva and Rashi is comfortable putting it over here. And it's not a sour story. It's not a bad story because once they did Tshuva, now it's, you can't imagine that that dark story should be, should be, should be a diamond, should be a, should be a badge of honor. Yes, it's a badge of honor today. How's it possible? What happened to this girl? What happened to the, what they did, the death that they caused, the carnage that they caused? Yes. Because they did tshuva and the right tshuva. And Pelegish Begiva, the, the story of the concubine at Giva, is not a dark story anymore. Even though in our heads, it's dark. It's like a person who did something very ferocious and then they do tshuva, it's not dark anymore. That's the power. It looks to us as dark because we're looking with human eyes. If we don't do tshuva, it's the greatest darkness. If tshuva is done, it's a different story. It's converted. It's converted to light. It's enormous. So watch what I found, something so extraordinary today. This is my own little nugget that I'm going to add in over here, which made me very happy. When I was looking up today in the morning, this this Pelegish Begiva story, because as I told you, I'm not that fluent in the, the Nach and the Navi, 
So I went and I looked up the story. So I used an art scroll chumash. And the art scroll, the English translation, I'm reading the whole story, the last two chapters of Shoftim, I'm reading this. And um, I get to the part where it says that they should go grab themselves wives. That's why I took out the book to read in the first place. Where I didn't know the story where they should go grab the women. So I was bothering me grabbing the girls. Like they're going to dance and they're grabbing them. It's, like, it's, it's an abduction of the girls. So the art scroll gives commentary in English. And they and 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 this is such a such a, it's in, this story is unexplainable. How did the rabbis tell them to go grab a woman? They explain this explanation that the Rebbe gives, and they say that it's tshuva. That's the power of tshuva. The power of tshuva is to 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 transform and to grab a a a, a an extraordinary power to take from one ear one place and transform it completely, and that's expressed in the grabbing of the woman because the Rebbe concludes them and then they conclude that's the reason why the Binyaminites can't get married ordinarily an ordinary system of getting married is you find what belongs to you in a regular way the reason why they grab them is because it's it has to do with this enormous energy of Shevet Binyamin the ability obviously the marriage over here is reflecting their soul's mission in this world to transform and to take and to take, to be able to not work in the conventional means, but to leap over the conventional means and trans and bring into holiness and to take and, and to be able to en enrich themselves and their entire godly sphere with, with things that really don't belong there. And yet they're able to do so. So the art scroll brings this and they say where it's from. They say it's Lakuti Sifis. Now, why did I get excited? Because art scroll generally doesn't bring much Lakute Sichas. They don't. Um, I think that art scroll is missing a lot. They bring a, a lot of commentators, always. But they, no. The Jewish world is still beginning to get accustomed to the Lubavitcher. The Rebbe is such a light, such a out, that for many years, the light of the Rebbe is, is so bright that many people couldn't look at his light, and therefore they they sadly shunned him. They they or or at least uh, were uncomfortable with him. They saw the Rebbe as doing his own thing, not necessarily together with everybody else. People had so therefore the art scroll. Even I love art scroll, but in most of their commentary, they don't bring the Rebbe's interpretation. When I read this, I said I took a double take. I looked two times. And then I realized. This is exactly this. The Rebbe grabbed the art scroll that usually in this teaching, art scroll, which usually does not bring him. So in this very teaching that the Rebbe explains about how Binyamin has the ability to grab something from what usually is not and take that territory. So here in this very commentary, and art scroll didn't even realize it, <laughs> the Rebbe was a wolf in this case, going into the art scroll, grabbing this commentary and and making and, and inserting his interpretation into the art scroll Navi. I was blown away by that. I thought this was like the coolest thing. So um, bringing it together back, back again, we find um, we find in, 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 in the end of the 
of, of this very reading, Binyamin is the first verse in the sixth reading of the parsha. In the end of the sixth reading of the parsha, we find a similar, the Rebbe points out, the same, same idea emphasized. That the ability to be able to take negativity and transform it to light. Yosef, after Yaakov is finally taken to, passes away, and he's taken to the land of Israel, and he's buried. On the way home, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, are now terrified. Because they suddenly felt that there may be the reason why Joseph never took revenge from them is because their father Jacob was alive. But now that Jacob died, passed away, Yosef was going to get even with them. They were scared. So they sent messengers to him and they were crying and so on and so forth. Asked for forgiveness. Yosef is consoling his brothers and says, you have nothing to worry. I don't bear a grudge against you. So he tells them these words. He says, Atem chashavtem l'ra, you thought for bad, Elokim chashavalatova, but God thought, thought, your very thoughts that you thought for bad, to sell me as a slave and to denigrate me and to destroy my life, God had good intentions. And the, what was the outcome? Lahachios amrav, to be able to enliven lots of people. Amrav means a lots of people. Because I came to Egypt, I was able to save the world from the famine and supply food for everybody, and especially our family. So the question the Rebbe asks over here is, what does it say? What is Yosef emphasizing? You guys thought bad, and God thought good. If he's trying to console them, don't talk about what they thought bad. Just say, you know, well, everything is for the good. It's all he could have, he should have just said it. They're coming, obviously feeling terrible. They're scared. So he should have just said, you know what? We believe everything is for the good. And in this case, actually, everything is for the good. As you see that happen, what does he emphasize? You thought bad, but God thought good. And why does he conclude with the words, lahachios? It all led to what? Lahachios, to enliven Amrav. Lots of people, a great nation. The word Rav is not a holy word. The difference between Jacob and Esau, Rashi points out that Yaakov and Esau, Yaakov uses the word when, when he wants to tell when he wants to tell his brother Esau that he has plenty. He says to him, Yes, I have everything, everything I need. Esau says, I have a lot. And Rashi says, saying a lot, that's that's arrogance. I have a lot. I have. So how come Yosef says he could have said, Lahachio is um to enliven the entire people. What does he mention? The great, a, 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 many, many of a people. What does he use the word rav, which generally is not necessarily a positive word. And it's a word that has to do with Rishus Arabim, with the Klippa, with the other side. But this is exactly the point that's happening here, because the beginning of the reading and the end of the reading has the same theme. And the and the and the, the, the Yosef is telling his brothers that something happened over here. That's extra, a tshuva turnaround happened over here. Something that is associated with this Binyamin characteristic, with this nature of transforming the greatest darkness. You thought evil. You thought an act of bad. And why did it become so good? Why did it become so good? Because it was a transformation of darkness to light. 
Why did, if you had negative intentions, why did it end up being such a merit? And why did it end up saving the world? It, it turned out to be the biggest blessing. From what? From a very, 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 very mean and, and despicable plan that the brothers had to hurt him. How did it turn? The answer, Yosef says, is, is because even when we're scheming and doing bad stuff, there's a higher master plan. There's someone running things from a much higher plane. Elokim God is thinking for good. While we are making mistakes in this world, while we are making, we are choosing to do everything wrong and making mistakes, there's a higher guiding hand in that very darkness to lead to something very good. But if God wants to lead to something good, why does he have to do it through us making mistakes and darkness and, and choosing bad stuff? Why couldn't he just lead to the good without it? The answer is because the greatest lights are buried in, 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 in the darkest of places. And in order to elevate these, these sparks of holiness, which come from the highest, highest infinite lights, you can't get into the darkness unless you're sinning, unless you make mistakes. So the reason we, you thought bad, the reason you came to do the sin, because ultimately, there was no other way in which you would get down into that dark place and turn it around. And when you turn the greatest darkness to light, what happens? You get rav. Rav means the abundant goodness. Esau, the reason why he speaks in arrogance is because he comes really from that abundant world. But Esau was a corrupt human being down here. He wasn't in a rectified state. But when we do tshuva, that's the whole point of it. When we do tshuva, when we turn things around and we discover the divine reason why we sin to begin with, it's ultimately from God's perspective, all these sivuvim, all these, all these roundabouts and all of our, all of our cuckoo-ness and horrible trials and tribulations and where we do the stupidest things. As long as we stay focused and we do tshuva and we repent and we turn to God and we cry out, we keep on waking up every day and we don't throw in the towel and we say, Hashem, I'm yours. I might have been utterly, ridiculously dark yesterday, but I'm here today and I'm showing up. And when we, and that helps us. And then that process of tshuva. So what happens is we end up in that darkness itself, bringing out the greatest lights. And that's the story, I guess, for tonight, Fasara Betavis. Because we had a destruction. This temple was destroyed because of our sins. But had we not sinned and had we not made these mistakes and had we remained in the state of Israel, we would have never gotten to the Rav, the great 202 lights, which Gematria Rav, which has to do with the 202 sparks of holiness that they elevated in Egypt. We would never get to the abundant light. We wouldn't get to the infinity. We would always remain within measured holiness. So the wolf quality, going back to the wolf quality, is this quality of, of not accepting the status quo, not accepting what, not from ourselves, not from anything around us. It can't, you do it anyways. It says right before Mashiach comes, the fifth Chabad Rebbe said, today's days, we're not in a state where we can work in an organized fashion, he said. Today, the way we work is grab and eat, grab and eat. That means 
Grab opportunities wherever around you. Don't you know, make calculations. This person is ready. This person is not ready. I'm grabbing. I'm going to reach. I'm going to grab this individual and do a mitzvah with him. Even though our, on, on the ordinary circumstances, we would say, this guy's not ready for a mitzvah. He's not ready to study. He's not ready to learn. You got to work with him a couple. He needs therapy first. He needs some kind of purification. He should go to the mikvah first. He should study. He should get into, he or she should get into a better place. And then eventually we'll get them to do. Grab. Grab a person off the street and teach him the biggest secrets of the talk. Grab. Grab whatever. Grab everything. Grab yourself when you find yourself not in a good place. When you find yourself in the plegish begiva situation, grab yourself. Even when it's even when everything inside of you is screaming, it's not right. It's not right for me to act, to to do such a holy thing, to to act in such a holy way, to do this great good thing because I know myself and I know I'm ugly, I'm dark, I'm lowly, I'm I'm despicable, I'm, I'm I haven't rectified yet. How can I do? Be a wolf. And most important, let's grab ourselves out of exile transport ourselves to, in, into, into redemption. Say, well, 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 when I was ready, when I'm ready, I'm not, I'm still, I'm so exiled, I'm so dark, I'm so, grab, let's grab ourselves out of exile and plant ourselves into, into redemption. And let's grab the redemption out of God's hands and bring it down here. Even if God is still planning and he has still certain things that he wants to do, it's like too late, we grabbed it. We grab Mashiach out of God's hands and we just make it happen. Say, oh, come on, Rabbi, how can you say that? We can't grab anything. No, no, no. God in, empowered us to be a wolf. So let's wolf it up a little bit. Let's wolf it up and grab, because a wolf, a wolf has chutzpah. It's our job to have a howl like a wolf with chutzpah. And, 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 and there's no limit. We can take whatever we want. To realize, obviously, to use this in goodness and holiness, to help ourselves to whatever is good, we should grab it and bring it down and make it happen. So let's do it. Let's do it now. Tonight. Thank you.